to hear my conversation with John Cook. We talked about environmental investing and just the sheer magnitude of the opportunity that is in front of us. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with John Cook. John is the CEO of Green Chip Financial, a environmentally based investor out of Toronto. They sub-advise the McKenzie Global Environmental Fund. John, welcome back to the podcast. Nice to be here. So thanks for coming back. Uh, the reason that I've invited you back is to really talk about this thesis of a great energy transition. Uh, I know that you've uh, done some work on this and, and put out some pieces. Um, when a lot of investors think about your space, which is sort of environmental investing, they immediately think of things like solar panels, wind farms, these types of things. I'd, I'd love to get your comments on just how broad the space is and what you're looking forward to uh, when you look into the future. Sure. If, maybe if you think about the drivers of the space, of, of, the, of the transition itself being uh, changing demographics, you know, the, the global population now exceeding eight and a half billion people, meeting a world with increasingly scarce resources. And as we more people extract those resources, we create more environmental challenges, the biggest obviously being climate change. If you think of those very broad drivers, then when you get to the sectors and where the investment opportunities are, uh, it's easier to understand that it's much bigger than just wind and solar. Um, electrification of our energy system, which is really behind what wind and solar are doing, is an important piece of the transition. And it's about a third, you know, moving to renewable energy uh, and electrification of, of our system could address about a third of climate challenges. Okay. But, but we really need to focus on... Um, once you've got those uh, that renewable energy, you have those green electrons, you have to process those and transmit them. So there's all sorts of equipment involved in that. And then you really get to how we use energy. And if you think about it in climate terms um, and where emissions come from, you can focus on three big areas. The first is uh, buildings, our building stock, how we heat, cool, and light our buildings. The second is industrial processes, including agriculture. About a third of emissions come from that area. And there are so many technologies to make um, industrial processes more efficient. You know, precision agriculture and agriculture in industry, it's a sort of convergence of technologies like metadata with robotics and, and uh, power management semiconductors and variable speed motors that all make industry more efficient. And then the final one that is certainly in the papers all the time is mobility and the transitions that are happening uh, in how we move light cars around, but uh, it extends also to heavy machinery, uh, trains, planes, automobiles, and the opportunities to move people and things more efficiently. That's another third of the climate challenge. So, um, you know, electrification is a big piece of this, but and that's where wind and solar comes in, but it is much broader. 
Interesting. And I'd love to dive into uh, maybe some of those uh, segments that you that you broke down just to get a sense for how big the opportunity is uh, in front of you. Um, if you were to see, um, let's just start with the U.S. I mean, that's fairly topical with uh, with Biden having a two trillion dollars, call it green uh, infrastructure plan. Um, you know, how big of a project is it going to be to uh, change the electrification uh, to a, a renewable source? Uh, and then maybe same question on on upgrading the the building uh, piece and some of the industrial processes that you that you talk to. Like, just how large of an undertaking is this? Yeah, it's it's absolutely massive. I mean, it's taken a couple hundred years for our current energy system to be built. You know, since right. let's say since coal met the steam engine back at the early stages, early early 1700s to today. So it took a long time to build. Our electricity grid is now as Thomas Friedman calls it the biggest machine man has ever built. I mean, like the infrastructure is huge. So the transition is going to be take a long time. It's going to be very large. I can put dollar figures to it. Um, you know, we currently spend about $300 billion a year on wind and solar. We know that if we want to have any chance of meeting Paris targets, we need to get that to about a trillion dollars a year. So three times. And the good news is, and that assumes, the good news is that renewable energy is getting cheaper, but that assumes that, that those, those cost curves are coming down or learning curves, as they call them. Uh, so I actually work for three times then. Because you're you're assuming it's cheaper, so it's you're you're talking about fairly Correct. large. Okay. Correct. And and you know, I, I'm quite comfortable with that figure. I actually work with 10 Queen's universities to 10 Queen's University students this summer. Um, I called them up. I knew that I I won't tell you how I, I got to know them, but uh, but these were engineers and commerce students who uh, didn't have jobs this summer. And I okay. said our job is gonna be to calculate what it will cost to get the world off coal by 2040. And they came up with an $18 trillion number. And uh, so that trillion dollar number is, and it's incredible work these kids did, but uh, that trillion dollar number a year is pretty close to 18 trillion over 20 years. And the, and the trillion would come from lots of places like Goldman Sachs and others. See, we've got to get there. But, um, but that's just renewable energy. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Biden. His His plan isn't just about, renewable energy or renewable electricity. It's much broader than that. I give you another example in the EU right now that have this, um, you know, another green economic development project underway. They're looking to spend $500 billion to create a hydrogen economy by 2030. And if you really get into wow. the, uh, the infrastructure that's necessary to, uh, use hydrogen in a meaningful way in the economy. Um, this is just Europe, but 500 billion actually is, is a small figure compared to where it could be. So this is, this is kind of hydrogen maybe is where we've been talking about it for 50 years, but it's maybe where uh, wind and solar was 10, 15 years ago. It's in the very early stages. It's economically right now, still not there. Um, you know, just to just to give people an idea, a kilogram of hydrogen has about the same energy content as a gallon of gasoline. Okay, and right now in California, you could fill your car with a kilogram of hydrogen for about fifteen dollars, and as you know, you can fill your car for let's say sure. two fifty to three dollars a gallon. Right. So a lot of that is transportation, uh, but but still, the production of hydrogen 
to get hydrogen into a form that we can use. It needs a lot of energy and needs a lot of investment. And we're in the early stages. So I've just given you two examples where uh, it's going to be very large uh, sums of money that are needed, um, but pretty certain that a good chunk of that capex is going to be invested. I don't know exactly what it will be, but but it's going to be very large. And it's hard to point to other industries right now and see anything that is on the same scale of capex. Right. So the the I guess the thesis is that the majority of capex, uh, particularly when we look at what's done well recently, you have sort of the technology uh, companies, uh, they don't have to spend a lot of capex. So when you think about actually spending capital and investing in that infrastructure, um, a real focus on green, um, green uh, things. I guess to, to pick up on one of your points on just the sheer size, and as I'm thinking through this this great transition, there's going to be a fair amount of legacy assets that will be utilized in some ways. Like I think about, you know, the road network in in North America is still obviously going to work for renewable uh, vehicles. The hydro lines maybe can be utilized as well. Where do you see the the point of spending being? most um, significant? Is it is it in several different areas or is it the origin of the, the electrons or, or where would that be? Whereabouts in the chain? Yeah, that, so um, it's hard to be uh, predictive or prescriptive as to where the capital will be spent. You know, um, I think the markets partially drive that. And as we know, governments try and push that. I don't think governments are particularly good at this. You mentioned right. Biden earlier um, and, and I mentioned what uh, the EU is doing. That's called prescriptive. And and uh, governments don't always get it right. But I can tell you the cost of capital right now for oil and gas projects is in the 15 to 20% range. So if you have a new project, you need to see that kind of return these days. Mm-hmm. And for renewable energy projects, you only need to see 3 to 5% internal rates of return on those projects. So capital markets are already determining in this great energy transition, which side of the transition they're more interested in investing in. And I mentioned that when we were talking about hydrogen, that the economics weren't clear yet, but that doesn't mean it's not important. So some times you need some sort of prescription from governments to get the scale built, to get the economics to fall into place. That's what we saw with solar, let's say 10 years ago. And then the price falls by 90% over the last decade. And suddenly the economics drive the rest of the transition. So it's this combination of both. And I think uh, I could sit back as somebody who watches this fairly closely and try and give you some idea of where I think it's going to go. But I I wouldn't be intellectually honest to suggest I know for sure. I think that uh, we're going to plant lots of seeds and innovation and research and governments are going to be a little bit prescriptive, but ultimately it'll be driven by economics. And as an investor, that's what we really want to focus on. You can hold off as green chip investors in the environmental economy. We can hold off until the economics are right and then look for securities that are mispriced, if that makes sense. We don't have to figure out which technology is going to be the technology that saves our bacon. That's not the best way, in my opinion, to make money in this space. 
Makes a lot of sense. Um, and I guess just based on your comments, you're saying $18 trillion uh, to transition off of coal um, and just significant capex. That's a lot of money that's being moved. Um, we've seen over the past, um, call it six months, nine months, a real run up in some of these uh, stock prices for mm-hmm. um, renewable uh, shares, solar um, and, and others. Um, but given the size of the transition, you know, is is the long term valuation of these businesses uh, concerning at all, or is that something that you're you're quite comfortable with? Well, I I think it's I'd like to think as a bottom up value manager, you see all securities have their own unique valuations. Uh, sure. There's certainly lots of hype in our space from time to time, and you want to avoid the sectors that are overly hyped and certainly the companies that are overly hyped. The opportunity comes, I guess, individually when the cynicism sets in and people forget the sort of long-term growth potential of the sectors and then valuations um, can be attractive. And, uh, you know, we saw this play out 2007 solar stocks were the hottest sector on the planet by 2012 that's when we started really thinking that there was these learning curves were coming down on the cost, the economics were improving, manufacturing had moved from Europe and, and America where it was fairly expensive to Asia, the tariffs, you could see a path where they were going away and it was going to be these lowest cost producers that would, that would, that would win. And, um, you know, I think that these kinds of um, shifts create value where sometimes it's not just the overall growth it's it's shifts in how these businesses operate that can help create the value and uh, do i think that stocks are generally in our space more expensive right now than they were even two or three years ago probably probably um but uh but it is really big it's much more diverse than most think and there's still value to be found if you know how to look for it John, uh, we'll, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for spending the time. Really appreciate the insights. You're welcome. If you enjoyed this conversation, please check out my longer conversation with John, where we expand on all of the themes that we touched on here. You can find it in the podcast feed. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.